I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at fourteen ninety nine, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. This is an online recording given current restrictions, but hopefully it isn't too far away from the usual quality. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't but have a couple of quid to spare to do so, please have a look at patreon.com slash when Saturday comes. Harry, what kind of cuisine is on the table this time? I've gone all, I've gone completely Swiss this time. I don't know quite why. I think I recently purchased a set of 1970s fondue forks on eBay. Um, so maybe that's what's influenced it. So I've got Simply Swiss, Swiss minis, which are um, Swiss filled, uh, they're, they're chocolate eggs. So it's not really the time of year for them. But anyway, I've got those. They're quite nice. And unusually, um, they're actually made in Switzerland. Um, which is which is quite a thing, and then the other thing that I've got is uh, to go with them. I paired them with some forest fruits mini Swiss rolls, but these are actually Polish Swiss rolls. Confusingly, um, I was hoping to get some Viennese whirls from Kiev to go with them, but couldn't find those. So anyway, so that's what we have today: a small selection, but uh, but a good one, I think. Continuing your celebration of the Swiss vote to was it continue freedom of movement or embrace freedom of movement? The, the, yes, they did. They well, not or not rejects it anyway. I think that's they they did that yes because someone was co- someone was complaining on Twitter that they'd found a they'd found a Swiss roll containing Sicilian lemon, which they, they thought was a con- they thought that was a contradiction. But I don't know what the Polish Swiss roll the Swiss didn't the Swiss obviously didn't patent the Swiss roll. We'll get a sort of one of those demarcation things like with champagne, where Swiss roll can only be made in Switzerland. Oh yeah, like with champagne, most of it has to be sparkling wine, doesn't it? That's right, exactly. I think they need that. They need one of those Appalachian Controle for Swiss roll. As do McVitie's with Jaffa. Well, indeed, with that, you see, because that was another thing, as someone also has pointed out on Twitter, I'm getting ahead of myself, that the raspberry and strawberry and other Jaffa cakes is that the Jaffa part of Jaffa cakes is the orange. So I think, I can't remember who it was, me too, I think it was on Twitter, said, how can it be a Jaffa cake if it doesn't have orange in it? Something that Bertrand Russell would doubtless have pondered. 
were he alive today and doing a podcast which which he would be in fact if he were alive today <laughs> and doing a football and confectionery podcast and any news from the northern league harry uh, yeah i went to a game on saturday and it was it's absolutely pouring down with rain and as you know you're not the clubhouses now have to be shut throughout the game and for an hour beforehand and an hour afterwards and with social distancing all the covered areas which i've always complained that the fa's insistence that Northern League had all these covered areas. I've always protested it was ridiculous until I was forced to stand out in the pouring rain for a whole game. And, of course, you have to wear your mask throughout the game. And by the second half, my mask was absolutely soaked, and I felt like I was nearly drowning. I was like I was being waterboarded. So I would recommend, if you do go to a rainy game, take a change of mask. That's what I would say. I was at Carlisle City on the same rainy day, as you know, and at half-time, two of the volunteers started trying to sweep rain off the pitch with actual brooms, and it was the closest I've seen to watching Sisyphus with the rock and the hill in real life. (laughs) some sort of metaphor for everything we're going through. Andy, any exciting happenings there? Uh, well, looking down from the top of the table, of course, Everton doing quite well. Um, the air's yes. quite thin up here, actually. I'm not used to it at all. I suppose you adapt to it, though. In my case, I may not need to after next week to play Liverpool next. A couple of people on, on Facebook have pointed out this, that uh, Peter Shilton has popped up on Facebook offering people the opportunity to buy a personalised video message from him for the oddly specific amount of £229. I don't know if that keeps him below <laughs> a certain tax threat. <laughs> and it has to be, uh, he says, as long as it's sensible. But I think that may be fairly narrowly defined for the Peter Shilton of 2020, unfortunately. By way of comparison, he's charging more than is asked for on the Cameo platform by, among others, Alice Cooper, David Hasselhoff and Flavor Flav, though he is cheaper than Floyd Merriweather. So bear that in mind when weighing up your options. In the wake of um, Gunasaurus being laid off by Arsenal, Arsenal Masket being laid off, um, somebody tweeted, in fact, David Squires, cartoonist of The Guardian, occasionally contributed to WSC, tweeted a message, from, retweeted a message from Notts County that Casper Sloth has been released by the club, and uh, which, as he says, he thought might be a mask, but turns out to be a player. <laughs> then, uh, further to the talk of players uh, uh, named after other players in the, in the previous podcast, Phil Town says that Rio Aves, uh, Aves uh, captain, uh, Ricardo Jose Montero is called Tarantini of the Argentinian World Cup defender and uh, briefly a Birmingham City player after, to whom he bore resemblance when he was younger. But the, the Argentinian Tarantini reacted badly when he found out about the Portuguese one. And there's a quote from him saying, actually, I'm not happy about this at all. He's using my surname. My image is a world champion. No one authorised any of that. It makes me really bad that he has a shirt with my name on it that isn't his. I see that as a theft of my name. But maybe it'll give pause for thought to the various players who call themselves Pele. <laughs> and the new issue of When Saturday Comes is out now. Another very enjoyable letters page. Which letters did you enjoy in particular? Well, uh, we had a reference in the previous issue to uh, to Mark Lazarus of QPR, who scored the winning goal in the League Cup final in 1967. And um, John Morrow sent his letter saying that uh, Mark Lazarus, Lazarus released a single called QPR The Greatest, which was a fairly forgettable as he says, a fairly forgettable slice of brassy, cockney, tongue-in-cheek rhubarb in a vaguely Stanley Holloway style. Um, (laughs) But the B-side, which is called Supporters Support Us by the mysterious QPR supporters, has taken on life its own with psychedelic rock fans, and it's now regarded as a deep cut by genre fans. remains one of the very few football songs to try and gain any following beyond its club's fans. So I don't know if that's on YouTube, but uh, check it out. Um, Also... From um, John Morton, a discussion about football clubs appearing in TV series. A Man United Blackburn game apparently appeared as a plot point in Entourage. 
Blackburn. The hero of the show is placing a bet that he knows he can't afford on Money United to beat Blackburn. The game comes down to a penalty, which will apparently secure United, who are supposedly losing 2-1 in what, what they refer to in the show as overtime. And Brad Friedel saves um, Van Nistelrooy's spot kick, but then it's revealed that, in fact, the bet was never placed. The footage is real, but Money United won the match. Um, a League Cup semi-final and the penalty miss occurred and the game was heading to uh, overtime at one all. And Harry, any standout letters for you? Well, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed those letters as well about uh, Southampton appearing on Neighbours apparently as well. I did like that. It does uh, crop up, I think, in succession. Um, the award-winning show on HBO, I think that in that was a plot where one of, one of the sons of the kind of Rupert Murdoch-like figure played by Brian Cox buys decides that as a birthday present he'll buy him the football team he supports in Scotland and buys him hearts. But, of course, it turns out he supports Hibs. But anyway, um, I, I like the letter about, I think it was from Les Bennett of Hampshire, which was about who the real assister is, if you see what I mean. And when a goal scored, and it says it says that the person who the, gets the assist is always the person who just passes the ball. to. But it could be that someone has actually, one player has actually dribbled past five other players. Then he knocks the ball on. This guy gets the ball and just plays a simple pass. And then the goal scorer scores. Who is the real assister of the goal? You see, that's what he's asking. So maybe, that's a, maybe we need a, a better system of assists. If I if I can say that properly, a system, a, 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 a cyst system, as it were. Yeah, or uh, maybe it maybe it could be called a fluffer Issue 403 of When Saturday Comes is out now. As mentioned, if you don't already, please do have a think about subscribing to the magazine. Andy, tell us about some of the contents in that new issue, 403. Uh, well, we've got pieces about watching um, league clubs um, with and without crowds. Matthew Gooding on Cambridge were allowed to have a crowd for a football league trophy game against Fulham. They're one of the teams who had been expecting to play a league match in front of a crowd in the month as well, before, later in the month before that plan was dropped. And uh, also a thing about Doncaster away at Charlton, another game that had uh, had been scheduled for a crowd where well, writer Glenn Wilson was working as a co-commentator. Last time he was in the press box at Charlton, he says, I lent Tony Cotty a pen for his crossword. Um, two features on women's football, one by Gary James on uh, Janice Lyons, no relation, who uh, was a uh, term professional as a player with Juventus in the 70s when Italy was a long way ahead of England in the way that women's football was being organised at the time. Plus, um, Catherine Eto looking at the arrival of several uh, world stars, notably players from the US in the, in the, uh, the WSL this season. Um, also got Mark Sanderson on the decline of the black boot. Um, pink boots responsible, as, as he says, for 636 goals in the Premier League last season. Black boots only 36. The mark says, in hindsight, black boots days were numbered as early as 1998 when Martin Keown, a poster boy for the black boot, no nonsense brigade, if ever there was one, played the FA Cup final, a pair of red Puma Kings. <laughs> um, we've also got match of the month, uh, Hugh Richards on uh, Enfield against Lewis in the Eastman League in front of. Uh, a crowd of 250 Enfield's ground, of course, including a great um, Art Deco grandstand. Even though Lewis lost the game, the manager says at the end, well, it's great just to be finally playing football again. And I'm sure that's a sentiment lots of people will agree with. Um, and also, of course, we have Harry's column for this month. Yes. What did you write about this time, Harry? I wrote about a sort of something a bit based on something you and I witnessed, Dan, which was two men who um, were, were sort of supported just one player who was on the field. And, and and championed him and shouted his name and, and gave him advice and shouted all the time about this one player so that 
I was standing, you and well, you and I were both standing near them, and it gave the impression that this player was involved. He was at the very fulcrum of everything his team did. But of course, he was playing on the left side of midfield. So in the second half, they moved round to the other side of the pitch. And after 20 minutes, it became obvious that he's just a completely peripheral figure. Um, but just just their shouting had kind of created this set, this buzz about this player, and so I sort of I wrote about that, you know, and the fact that that's often happened. It seems to me that that's often happened with TV commentary with certain players. I mean, Lionel Messi when he's playing for Argentina in a World Cup, he basically never seems to do anything at all; just kind of wanders around like a a child is lost in a shopping centre. And, you know, yet the commentator, every time he gets the ball or the ball goes near him, Messi! They go like this. And so you get the impression that, that something exciting has happened with him when it actually hasn't, you know. Um, so that's that's what my column's about. <laughs> and you'll have enjoyed the Crooktown photo feature. Uh, I really did enjoy that, yes, with the mill, the Millfield ground, which features the, the classic tea bar, only foods and sauces. Yeah. Now, I'm sure there are lots of, uh, of uh, punning names for tea bars at non-league grounds around Britain, and I, but I wonder if anyone can beat that one. I mean, I did. There is a there is a food van on Dartmoor that's called Hound of the Basket Meals. Um, <laughs> but anyway, that's not that's not actually near, that's not actually at a non-league ground. So obviously, that's not that's not allowed to enter this comp- my competition for the best punning name of a tea bar at a non-league ground. There must be a 007 license to grill somewhere. I'm sure. Yeah, there, there probably is. There's probably a, there's, there may be in Northern Ireland a for Cod and Ulster uh, tea bar. I don't know. Well, well, let's well, people write in. But we need photographic evidence on Twitter of these tea bars. I think. I think I saw there is going to be a calendar of non-league tea bars, isn't there? I think I saw that somewhere. There is that. actually. Yeah. So it was hard to tell at first. I thought I assumed that was a spoof, but I don't think it is because I think it's someone who's involved with Lewis FC or one of these right. slightly hipster clubs down in the mm. south. Um, and I think so. It did look fantastic. I must say, I certainly would invest in it. As well as the When Saturday Comes calendar now available. Yes, indeed. Buy that one first, and then if you've got any change left, buy the buy the tea bar one. Exactly. Can be organised in every room of the house. Yes, quite right. Yes, I, I did also enjoy that when Saturday comes the article about the Luton and Forest program by James Castle, and um, partly because at the end he says this thing about how his father only left these very few things, and it sort of reminded me about you know that 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 we kind of forget now that people didn't preserve things from the past. Mm. You know, he says all he left was two programs, a, ch- a school bible a couple of watches and a, a set of small glasses. And that was the, all the things that his father sort of left behind, which mm-hmm. it did sort of remind me of my own grandfather. You know, my mother has nothing of his because he just didn't really accumulate anything. You know, he probably had his clothes, a watch and, a, you know, a couple of sets of cufflinks and that mm. was it, you know, which yeah. is, I don't know yeah. whether it's sort of poignant or it shows a greater kind of humility that you don't feel that people should would want to would want to be uh, looking through your things in a hundred years' time or whatever, I'm not sure. but So I thought that was really poignant. Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Stafford Rangers, Fabian De Freitas, handsome programme sellers, and it's landed on footballers' diets and tastes. Harry, what does that entirely random topic bring to mind for you? Well, prawns, Dan, um, because British football has a a problematic relationship with the prawn. People would remember Roy Keane's denouncing of the prawn sandwich brigade of uh, Manchester United support, but he's not alone. Um, 
Bill McGarry, the notoriously fierce manager of Wolves and Newcastle United, um, had a big thing about prawns. Derek Dugan recalled that they were at a hotel once and one of the players had mistakenly, or not mistakenly, had ordered a prawn cocktail only to have it snatched away from him by Bill McGarry with the words, you eat what I eat and you don't eat that. Um, When he was at Newcastle, there was another incident involving a a confiscated prawn cocktail at which Bill McGarry, uh, on this occasion, said, what do you think this is, a fucking holiday camp? (laughs) Well, uh, Jock Steen also took a similar attitude when, when Andy Gray was playing for Scotland um, they were in a hotel and they they had a choice of starter, soup or prawn cocktail. And Andy Gray, you know, he was playing for Aston Villa. He was used to the bright lights. He ordered a prawn cocktail only to find Jock Steen looming up behind him saying, you're from a council estate in Drumchapel in Glasgow. What do you know about prawn cocktails? You'll have broth like the rest of us. I should say that Bill McGarry also had a thing about bread rolls as well and used to count them all um, because the players were only allowed to have one each. And Derek Dugan explained in his autobiography, I can't believe that I've read Derek Dugan's autobiography, but anyway, I have. And it's proved worthwhile. It says, Bill McGarry believed that bread slowed you down. He thought it sapped your energy, (laughs) which is fantastic. And of course, so the the prawn sandwich contains bread and prawns and also mayonnaise, which has also been a, a source of annoyance to football managers. When Ronald Koeman was playing for Groningen, the coach there, Theo Verlangen, he used to find the players 500 guilders if he found them putting mayonnaise on their chips. <laughs> so he didn't mind them eating chips, but he didn't mind them eating <laughs> mayonnaise for some reason. And when Wande Ramos took over from Martin Yall at Spurs, he was shocked when he walked went into the restaurant on the Spurs training ground and found that there was mayonnaise on the table, you know, bottles of mayonnaise on the table, and he had it removed, along with the Tabasco as well, which he also was offended by for some reason. So yes, so that, so that's it. So so prawn cocktail, which also does contain mayonnaise as well. So whether it's the prawn, the prawn mayonnaise bread combination, absolutely lethal for footballers. And Andy, footballers' diets and tastes. Neil Robinson, who was a fullback with Everton and Swansea in the late seventies, early eighties, was was a vegan, possibly British football's first. He wore boots that are made of some kind of synthetic material. I don't know what options he had for food in those days. Not very much. He may have had to import it. <laughs> Maybe a, a potato-oriented diet, possibly. Dino Zoff, famous Italian goalkeeper, when he was about fourteen was turned down by a couple of big clubs because he was too small. So his grandmother got him to eat five eggs a day for a few years. So he eventually grew by several inches by the time he was 18. Then, of course, went on to have a, a great career because I suppose you wouldn't want to stand downwind of him. Although maybe that worked in his favour as a young player and a striker would shoot from further away because they didn't want to inhale his latest <laughs> waft. Steve Claridge, when he stayed at hotels and away games, had a thing where he'd take, uh, if there was a, a, a fruit a bowl of fruit and there was a pineapple he'd always take the pineapple back to his room with him and slice it up himself he mentions this in his autobiography he got into some kind of ritual after it had been lucky for him once so he'd, he'd eat a pineapple by himself I suppose it's relatively healthy at least it wasn't like a meat and potato pie or a giant tub of ice cream or something some managers these days of course trying to get players to stick to certain dietary regimes where at home they can't eat any you know saturated fats after 6 30 or something like that but I guess um Half-time oranges uh, were always uh, deemed to be okay. Uh, they're no longer no longer de rigueur, though. I don't know, I'm not quite sure what the thinking was of players having oranges at half-time, but they, that seems to have stopped. Uh, Roy Keane, who we mentioned before, one of the reasons he blew up at the Ireland training ground before the 20, 2002 World Cup and ended up quitting was that he discovered they hadn't brought the food he expected. And there was a quote from that he'd apparently said to Mick McCarthy, where's the fruit, cereals and pasta? The team were having like cheese sandwiches or 
chocolate donuts or something. And <laughs> you can imagine the the look of angry bafflement on his face when he said, "Where's the fruit cereals and patties?" Probably got a bowl with him, you know. And there's no. And McCarthy said something like, "You should have said if you wanted that." <laughs> Maybe <laughs> with a child. <laughs> yeah. Um, also on food, I'm reminded that uh, one of the uh, Samuel Adice, not a popular manager of Everton, reflected in his nicknames, hinted that he perhaps uh, was, was a bit fond of eating. Uh, he's known as uh, Lardiola and uh, the Count of Monte Bisto. <laughs> uh, I also remember once being asked by a radio show um, if we knew what restaurants Gianluca Vialli, when he's manager of Chelsea, went to. And the temptation was to say, yeah, he goes to one of those. Eat all he can for a fiver pizza places, you know, but we didn't. Uh, a couple of times I was in a, a pizza restaurant in Westland and happened to see Carl Hutchins, who's a Brentford defender of the time, twice sitting waiting for a pizza takeaway. Um, it's of early evening, presumably he'd been at a game, but he's wearing his Brentford tracksuit by the time, as if he just got straight off the coach, didn't have time to change, went straight to the to get a pizza takeaway, which is, a, I don't know if that's a good thing or not, possibly not. Yeah, but it's sort of one surprise to learn that John, John Burridge was a, sort of ahead of his time in in, the, in his diet, the, the madcap goalkeeper, and uh, he said that he claimed that he'd studied the diet of African tribesmen to uh, to learn about his own diet. But he, <laughs> well, all of them. But he used to, um, he used to, he used to eat baby food um, to get because he thought that it, you know, obviously it's quicker to digest and you would get carbs from that, which leads me on possibly distastefully to Joachim of Real Betis and Malaga, the oh yes, thank God, the winger, yes, who, who attributed his strength and stamina to the fact he was breastfed until he was seven, <laughs> and he said that he, he said that when he was playing at primary school, other the other boys would run off at half time to the to the water fountain and he would run over to his mum. Um, <laughs> I don't know, it's going to give yeah. it's made me feel slightly sick for some reason. <laughs> Footballers and food always reminds me of something I'm worried I've mentioned before on the podcast, but that's never stopped us previously. Um, <laughs> at, be, be, being at a Stuart Roy Clark exhibition launch in the Football Museum in Manchester, when a Scotch egg rolled perilously close to Viv Anderson, and it was underneath his foot, and me and my friend Paddy thought he was going to flick it up and do some sort of kick-ups with the Scotch egg. But in the end, he crushed it, and it was very much stuck on his shoe as he talked away to Sky Sports' Claire Tomlinson. We were quite transfixed with the idea of Viv Anderson standing on a Scotch egg, and it was one of the highlights of the evening. I'm sure that I have told this story before as well, Dan, about um, <laughs> that John Burridge, that when he, he, he actually shared a, he shared a sort of house with a couple of players when he was at the villa, and he got them to throw fruit at him yeah. unexpectedly to, to sharpen his reflexes. So, you know, you know, be sort of like there and they just hurl a, suddenly they just hurl a banana at him when he wasn't expecting it and he'd catch it. Like Inspector Clouseau with... Um, exactly. Not, not now. <laughs> not now. <laughs> I thought a Scotch egg would be about the most football. You know, that would be a good, that would be, that'd be a good snack for a footballer because, as you say, he could do keepy-ups with it. <laughs> <laughs> not now, Ray Graydon. <laughs> 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 he, he, brings, he brings a girl home only to be hit on the head with a pineapple. <laughs> uh, leave it out, Alan Evans. <laughs> I'm surprised there aren't tales of old-fashioned footballers that never had a football, but they did have a Scotch egg and they used to play the game with that in the school playground. <laughs> but well, well, Wilf Mannion said that when I interviewed Wilf Mannion, one of the things that he said was that they used to play on at, uh, in Southbank when he was growing up. They used to play with a pig's bl- an inflated pig's bladder. And he said to me, if you could control a pig's bladder, you were a ruddy genius. <laughs> <laughs> or a pig, presumably. Or a pig. I was going to say, maybe the pig might agree with that. Yeah. 
<laughs> I also recalled Alex Stock mentioned a couple of times on this podcast before when he was Yeovil player manager during their 1949 FA Cup run, had the players on a special diet of glucose tablets and sherry. It sounds like a modern fad diet, like the Atkins or something. And footballers and food came back to me watching the Spurs documentary. One of the later episodes, Delhi Ali says that he's cooked beans on toast for the first time and is is just hyper with this concept that he just put beans in the microwave for two minutes and quote i thought it was going to be more complicated than that <laughs> i notice in a lot of the older stories of footballers diets bobby charlton on the sherry and the whiskey for his breathing jackie milburn with a steak and kidney pie and the halftime fag cigarette seemed to be part of the diet in the past does that bring to mind for either of you any smoking footballers or stories uh, well there's Roy, Roy Vernon who's Everton's captain when they won the league in 63 was certainly a, a heavy smoker to the extent I think it may have even have um, encouraged Harry Catrick ever to manage to basically sell him in the end he got he, he thought he just, well I think he was boozing a fair bit as well but it was kind of smoke he'd smoke at half time and maybe during the, the pre-match kick around and stuff um Gerson Brazil playmaker in 1970 World Cup was said to smoke 50 a day during his playing career but he's still alive so he must have some good genes or something never heard of a footballer who smoked a pipe but nice to think there might have been one maybe one of those clay pipes in the 19th century like pop alex stock who dan just mentioned he seemed like the sort of person who might smoke a pipe imagine him with a sort of briar <laughs> pipe in his mouth couldn't you alex stock yeah or maybe some sort of cheroot possibly yes maybe <laughs> bobby charlton as you mentioned was a was a big smoker and he won after he'd retired i remember he was on bbc and he was asked what he missed most about football and uh, not seizing the opportunity to say the the, ban- the dressing room banter, he uh, he said that the thing that he missed most was waking up on Saturday morning, smoking a cigarette while lying in bed and thinking about the game. Um, and I think when he I think when he retired, certainly the Chelsea players on the pitch presented him with a cigarette case and lighter. Um, so yeah, he was a, he was a big smoker, Jack. Charlton also was a smoker, the famous picture of him in his Leeds kit with smoking a fag, isn't there? And I think also sort of lying in bed, I was going to say with Billy Bremner, but in the same room as Billy Bremner lying in bed, and I think they might both be smoking. And uh, yeah, so um, I think a lot of the Italian players as well, I think quite a few of them were smokers. I remember that Ozzy Ardiaz said that when the Argentinian World Cup winning squad, that I think at half time in the dressing room, you know, it was almost sort of billowing with smoke. That's why I kind of open a window and whisk the smoke out because so many of them smoked at half time. And also drank red wine. Also had a glass of red wine. Go back to the diet rather than an orange. They, they were quite a few of them had a glass of red wine at half time just to just to freshen them up a bit. As did Faustino Aspria on the day he made his Newcastle debut, didn't he? And, and changed the game at the Riverside, his his lunch, his pre-match meal was just a glass of wine with Warkev. <laughs> so it worked for well, that, that'll be That'll be Faustino for you. <laughs> Faustino wine is on offer in Tesco at the moment as well, I noticed. Not not related to him. Not not, not named after him. I don't <laughs> see what you There's a type of Rioca, but I could see that. He, maybe he took his name from that, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> he was an obvious sponsorship deal for them, really, wasn't he? Well, there's quite a few celebrity wines in Tesco at the moment. So there's one an easy link up that they could make without having to reprint any of the labels. We've talked before about footballers retiring into B&Bs and pubs, but are there any instances of players retiring into becoming a chef or a cook in that side of hospitality? Uh, well, Gary Neville, uh, the man who knows everything, uh, owns a restaurant called the Bull and Bear inside Manchester Stock Exchange. Um, you can imagine Gary appears there sometimes to tell diners what they're doing wrong, you know. Like, no, no, you need to scoop, scoop up the peas with a fork in your right hand. You know, Sir Alex would go mad if he was here now. Lou Macari, of course, owns a famous fish and chip shop near Old Trafford. I don't know if he still owns it or whether he's 
ever ever they're you know doing the batter dipping or having to say you know <laughs> we've run out of cod how about pollock? sort of imagining behind the counter of a chip shop though couldn't you It'd be quite fierce, be like the fierce man yeah i think you've had enough vinegar there yeah getting slightly <laughs> frazzled yeah yeah you put those sachets down that you, you can't yeah. what like that he'd be like that wouldn't he he wouldn't give you a free bun would he or anything like he wouldn't i bet he'd charge for scraps <laughs> he's the kind of man who charges for scraps as we well know <laughs> he's a, That's Lou the worst kind of man. <laughs> does he charge for scraps <laughs> Well, um, footballers who owned restaurants, um, Lee Chapman had Teatro, and he had one in London, and then he opened a branch of it in Leeds, and it was supposed to be sort of aimed at celebrities. Uh, But despite the fact that Richard Whiteley was a regular, the branch in Leeds was forced to close down due to lack of interest, which was (laughs) a bit sad, really. I once served Richard Whiteley when I was working in WH Smith's in York Station. He bought his telegraph and paid with a £20 note. And I asked him if he had anything smaller and he said, I don't carry change. That's my memory of Richard Did Whiteley. Did he? You'd think on Countdown he'd have been good. <laughs> it would be useful. He should have carried Carol Vorderman around with him to do his maths. That's right, to work out the change. I think you've got that. What 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 change do I get for, back from this £20 note, Carol? <laughs> Andy, if they were to become chefs, what type of food do you think certain football people would make? Staying with Manchester, I think Pep Guardiola would be a bit nouvelle cuisine, wouldn't he? It'd be one of those things like, um, you know, a veal statement with casual potatoes <laughs> on a bed of negotiated cabbage or something like that. But Harry Redknapp would have a restaurant where the food's delivered on a barrow and you have to negotiate the price of them at the end, but you somehow end up paying more than you expected. Neymar might have a cafe where they offer his rolls of various lengths. And um, Graham Soonis might have a place where everything on the menu seems quite bitter. (laughs) Make sure you never miss an issue of When Saturday Comes by subscribing today. Not only will you have the magazine delivered to your door and save on the shop price, but you'll also receive discounts on books and t-shirts, plus get free access to our complete digital archive, which stretches all the way back to issue one in 1986. Go to shop.wsc.co.uk for more information. It's time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what have you picked this time? Um, I've gone for Zelena Yetrava, Green is the Grass, which, as you'll hear, is another version of uh, Blue is the Colour, the, the song that Chelsea had mysteriously had a big hit with in the UK in 1972. We've previously played a Swedish version of that, um, recorded by Hamarbu, and this is now the Czech version, uh, proof that the song spread like a, a rash through European football in 1972. It's done by a sort of super group of footballers from Prague teams, including um, Antonin Penenka, he of the, uh, the famous penalty. So, uh, Green is the grass. And Harry, what did you pick this time? I've gone for Juventus by by Juventus um, in celebration of Dino's off. Andy mentioned his uh, his egg diet, um, so I've, I've picked him for that. And uh, it's a it's a slightly weird record, I have to say. It starts out like a sort of Roy Orbison country song with a thumping guitar, and then segues into Kenny Ball style Dixieland Garden. Over the top of it all is that the vocals of Fabio Montilio, 
It sounds like Jimmy Osmond singing Wagner. My own choice this time is Power to the Palace, Crystal Palace FC and Ray Glastonbury, Gary Jones and Ronald Cull, also from 1975, chosen because it includes the managerial team of Malcolm Allison and Terry Venables, which has always struck me as a combination which a pearly king would have rejected as being too cockney. And the Palace squad that year had such fantastic names listed on the back as they are performing in the record. Jim Cannon, Martin Hinchelwood... Phil Holder, which sounds like some kind of drinking implement, Stuart Jump, David Swindlehurst, Peter Wall and Alan Whittle. Each month on the When Saturday Comes podcast, I have a quick chat with someone from a club fanzine or podcast in a mirror of the way in which WSC once acted as a pivot for this country's vibrant zine movement. This time I spoke to Ian Rands of the Sheffield United pod, Four Blades in a Pub. Ian began by telling me about how they got started. The idea came in in February 2019. As a group of us go to the local pub, the Sheffield, near the match, meet before the game. We've all got to know each other over a number of years through when I was writing about United and blogging through to all of us at various points taking up running and being part of a kind of runner blades community that we've created online as well. So we went there, we had a good laugh, we 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 entertained ourselves, which is a worrying thing because we even think, start to think other people might find this entertaining as well. And uh, we were we were on a way, an away day to watch United in their promotion season um, play West Brom. And we'd stopped off in a pub in Litchfield on, on the coach. And there was three of us there. There was myself, John and Phil. And we were sat in the pub just pre-match, as we would a match before a match at Bramall Lane, uh, chatting away and said, you know what, we should just try and sit down and record some of this. And we said the person to do it with us is Dan. And Dan doesn't uh, tend to do the away days. He's their season ticket holder. But he, he would round it off. And we could. And then it was a conversation, what should we call it? Well, four blades in a pub isn't it and it and it kind of went from there we, we we then went to try and record our first episode which ended up being two blades in a pub but it was a kind of test for it and i guess we've just learnt on the job ever since to be honest we were just four guys having a chat in the pub about the game we just watched the game to look forward to and then we decided to add other features to it so one of the things we do is um the hall of fame so we nominate 
people, person and events, something ridiculous into the Hall of Fame. I think the first thing that went in there was Peter Unloves Gloves. So we, we, we put our nominations forward. Um, he had some fantastic red and white striped gloves like the kids wear, used to wear at school, you know, Sheffield United across the, uh, the back of the hand. Um, so, you know, we, we put for nominations forward, some, some, some silly, some quite serious. Um, and then we put it out to a, a Twitter vote. Um, and then if we're feeling quite down some weeks now, we flick that to Club 1867, which is the year of Wednesday's formation. And it's the, I guess it's our equivalent to Room 101. So we find things that we want to consign to to there. Uh, we've, we've done quizzes and things like that to, to to depending what was going on. So international week, we've had some themed quizzes and things on Sporkle. So we try and mix it up a little bit, but it, it's kind of evolved from uh, two of us with a, a dictaphone doing that very first one in a pub and realizing the sound quality was awful and the noise of the pub was just too loud to having, uh, I guess, all the contributors now who can cover when one of us has been well pre-covid was working away and a guy luke who's our producer and and actually makes us sound clear and audible when we're in the pub or as we have been for the last few months recording separately over zoom from our bedrooms this season and the end of last for the blade then did it extend the misery of United's bad results talking about it all the time or act as a kind of therapy i think there was a degree of therapy about it i think there's a there's a clip it's a bit of a, I would let's describe it as a, as a foul mouth rant from Dan on the pod about what they should do with football under lockdown and when they should basically get rid of it for now and bring it back when fans can attend and we can do it properly. And I think that that was a perfect example of a, a very lucid, very, very vehement feeling about uh, football at that time. And I, and I guess we're all feeling that way. Um and it is, it has been, a, with the start to this season as well, it has been a, a form of therapy to get together and talk about it. Some weeks it's kind of, are we recording tonight? No, can we do it tomorrow? We need we need another 24 hours. And, and I guess it's, we're fortunate. It's not it's not a position we've been in as as a group of fans since the very first few games of Chris Wilder's reign, where we, you know, we, we would, after his first four games, we were um, bottom, of, bottom of League One and uh, mm. wondering, what, what the, where the hell is this going to? But, um, you know, we've had an absolute fantastic ride ever since. So, yeah, this, this period has been has been more difficult and probably the motivation to get together and talk about it, and especially when we're so distant from it. And that's the thing I think we're, we're all missing at the minute. We know, and I think every club will say this, but I think it, it, it's clearly had an impact on us, the impact a full house has at Bramall Lane when visiting clubs come. And the away support and the noise and the backing that we brought, certainly through that first part of last season when our away form was excellent. So what about your earliest supporting days then? What made you a Blade and when did you start going? Um, I don't think I had any choice, really. <laughs> um, I I don't actually remember my first game. I think I was taken uh, when I was, I'm guessing, judging by the dates, three or four years old. Uh, to a match against Leeds. I know I went to that one in the League Cup because there was a bit of trouble in the stand and I know my dad and has talked about him and my granddad kind of shielding me from that. I have had a season ticket now for over 30 years and it's just something I've ridden all the way with my dad and he, I've... I meet with friends, I see friends in the pub, we'll meet at half time. You know, part of the four blazing is not just meeting in the pub, it's getting together at half time with a group of us all at the back of the cop chatting. But ultimately for me, it's been something that I've grown up doing with my dad. And I think unfortunately at the minute, I, I'm not sure if 
given his age and, and everything else, whether he will return to Bramall Lane when, when the fans are allowed back in, because mm. he, he may still be vulnerable to, until there's a solution to the problems we've got at the moment. So that that is a quite a hard thing for me to to, to take at the minute and, and get my head around really because I've you know spent the best part of 30 years spending every other Saturday just sat with my dad and then bringing my son as well it's been a real family affair thinking of the high times of being a blade if I give you three periods that I think must have been good in your life I'd like you to pick which was the best and why number one would be the Harry Bassett era winning at Leicester in the fluorescent kit the laver in front Dean and Agana. Number two would be the best times under Warnock when things were going well and you were on the way up. And number three would be the very best of last season, which was quite incredible. That's tough. That's tough. I think I think you would get a, probably a different answer maybe from some younger Blades. But I think for me, that moment, uh, I, was, I was at the game at Filbert Street where we won 5-2 on the last game of the season and sealed promotion back to the top flight. And that was the first season in the top flight in my lifetime for United. And, I, and I, yeah, I was 15, but it was not something, you know, we'd, we'd ever been there. Wednesday had always been in the ascendancy. And on that same day, Wednesday were relegated from the top flight as well. So we swapped places. It, it was just the perfect Sheffield double. Um, the, the the green and newspaper, the, the sports paper of Sheffield that night had the headline, Blades Glory, Owls Down. And I've still got my copy somewhere. And, and, and that for me... You know that was the kind of cherry on the icing of that cake. He couldn't couldn't have had a, a more perfect day, and we had some fantastic seasons under under Dave Bassett that followed. Um, beating you know beating Liverpool, um, beating beating Arsenal. We 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 we, we set ourselves. You know, Pete Spurs six 0 things that we we could only only dreamed about. And yes, Wednesday probably came back and 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 went ahead of us, I guess, in 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 terms of status and league position. But it it didn't matter because we were there and, and, and we were enjoying it. You know, last season was fantastic. I had some fantastic times with some great people uh, watching United. But I think think because I was a teenager and my age, mm. that, that Bassett era still probably resonates with me more, albeit I would say the watching United now in some ways is more enjoyable, if that makes sense, because of the way in which we're playing the game as well. Mm. Did you have the luminous top? I did, and I have it, and... I was very pleased to find for, I think I wore it for the game where we got the, the promotion from League One at uh, Sixfields and I managed to squeeze back into it. So that was that was quite a pleasing thing to try and achieve at my age. But yeah, I still have it and it's what a fantastic shirt that is. There's, there's been a few more luminous efforts across football in recent years, but at the time it was something else, wasn't it? I just, it was, it was incredible. It was. It, 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 no one had had a. I don't think anyone had had a shirt like it. And, and you know, Time Umbro were on top of the game in terms of, of, of football shirts. And um, I think, and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm sure I've raised this with Umbro online, but in the past when uh, when I've asked them, but I'm not sure I got an answer. But I, there was a story at the time that it was the, the biggest selling Umbro shirt at that time, yeah. um, or club shirt certainly, just because of how unique it was yeah. uh, at that moment. It was probably worn at illegal raves outside Manchester and Sheffield and everywhere else. <laughs> yeah, I was too young to do that, maybe. Yeah. But yeah, I can imagine it would have been uh, very popular for that for that purpose. That Leicester game really sticks in my mind, not because I remember it firsthand, but there were 
documentary cameras there, weren't there? And so you're able to see inside the celebrating dressing room, I think Dave Bassett just in his pants at one particular juncture, which is maybe just a memory that's haunted me for too long. I don't know. It was it was fantastic. I mean, yes, BBC Two did a six-part documentary series called United. So every Friday night, I think it was 9, 9.30, you could tune in and you'd see very odd camera angles on the highlights of the games you, you'd been to the previous week, but behind the scenes and each one was themed, one on the fans, one on the players' wives, uh, you know, one on the management, one on the youth team, I think, from memory. Um, but yeah, some fascinating insight. And that Leicester game in particular, um, half-time, we were 4-1 up. Okay, it's wrong, 4-1-4-2 four four, up at half-time. And they're having a big debate in the dressing room about who's the zone man at the corner. Dave Bassett and Jeff Taylor as assistant and just looking at the players and the players are just looking at them with complete disbelief. Are we really having this conversation? No one seemed to know who should be picking who up. A fantastic bit of interaction, well worth a, a, a seek out on YouTube. Um, but yeah, a, a really interesting insight into into that. I think there was another scene as well where um, after we'd played Barnsley away, I think it was, and Dave Bassett goes up to David Ellery after the match and asks him, can I have a word with you after the match? And David Ellery just kind of goes, no, you can't. And he goes, thank you very much, referee. And walks <laughs> off and you know, he's not, you know he said something completely different when he's got out of here shot of the cameras. <laughs> the obvious question after high times then, and I don't have a list of three, is low times in your supporting life with the Blades? Um, there's, there's two. And one probably I'm not, I'm not old enough to properly remember, but I was at the game where we lost to Walsall and we were relegated to the fourth division. Uh, I was there with my grandparents. My it's a bit of a sad story, but my grandfather passed away the week after. He, he never really got got over that fact. He, he was coming away from the match, just going fourth division. I never thought I'd see us in the bloody fourth division. Um, but obviously, we we bounced back the following season under Ian Porterfield. And I guess the other the other low time. I think it's hard because some yeah we've had playoff heartache so many times I think we've got the worst playoff final record or certainly a joint possibly now playoff final record and lost in semi-finals of cups and and relegation under under Neil Warnock on that last day but the other I think depressing period was just prior to to Chris Wilder taking over and the the club just felt in a real rut under uh, David Weir and, and Nigel Adkins, and even to an extent, despite we had a little bit of success under under Nigel Clough, it it just felt we, we were we were meandering as a club and just heading nowhere. This is my let's unite the blades and the owls question. When I was researching, <laughs> when I was researching Sheffield's role in the formation of football as the game we know it now, for a book, I, I felt so strongly it was the first city of football. Would you agree with that? I think it is. I think, and it, and, it, and as a as a born and bred Sheffielder, it it frustrates me immensely that the city and the and the council don't make more of it. You mm. know, we, you've got Sheffield Club as the first foot first football club. You've got Hallam, not far from where I live, Northern Counties East League Club, but that's the oldest uh, ground still in use. Um, Sheffield United, the first United, took part in the first floodlit game. Um, I think the first radio broadcast as well. Bramall Lane's the oldest professional football ground still in use. And um, so many football firsts and so much history in the, in this city. I, I did find it amusing Harry Pearson's piece in Where Saturday Comes. Uh, I think it was an issue or two back of questioning, you know, who did Sheffield FC play in that intervening <laughs> period? <laughs> you know, but uh, yes, yeah, such an important part of, of football's creation uh, and development of the game at various stages to, to what it is today. And um, 
yeah, I just I just wish we as a city uh, made more of that heritage. I remember reading in other little innovations as well, like the the first something like the first crossbars, the first football pinks, the first drawing teams out of a hat. There's little ones as well as those big ones, and I it, I know yeah. you had that you had that ill-fated music museum, but it should have been a football museum, shouldn't it? Surely it should, and it it, it pained me as much as I've enjoyed trips to Preston and then to Manchester for the National mm. Football Museum. That is something that that should have been Sheffield. And I think there was talk about it. I, as I remember going back 20 plus years, there was there was some university plans to set something up um, near the motor, near the M1 motorway out towards where Meadowhall Shopping Centre is now. And some plans that just never never materialised. And that would have been fantastic because, you know, it, it is the birthplace of, of football. Uh, I think other, other uh, Cambridge University and others may lay claim to, to, to other aspects of, of that. But the game we knew came from the Sheffield rules and mm. development of the Sheffield rules. So it, it is, it is something that's um, like you say, that there are so many other little firsts, as you say as well, that, 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 that can be found that relate back to Sheffield or its clubs. And if that doesn't cause 700 letters to come into when Saturday comes, then nothing will. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't want to be come across as chief antagonist, but. <laughs> no, I, I put you on to it. I agree. Um, finally, then, uh, I can't do the When Saturday Comes podcast with a Sheffield United man without mentioning When Saturday Comes, the film. What did you and other Blades make of that particular <clears throat> masterpiece? Oh, master, masterpiece. I think you've summed it up perfectly there, Dan. I mean, <laughs> no, I, it, it, it was it was slightly cringe. I don't know what aspects made us as cringe more. Whether it was uh, uh, Emily Lloyd's Irish accent, um, the, the phrase "I've I've got I've got a trial with United" uh, <laughs> just gets rolled out by Blades fans a lot. That's uh, coming from the film itself, and and I, I, many many United fans will remember the night when. Sean Bean spent most of our time trying to film the successful penalty during a cup tie. It was actually the, I think it was a cup tie against Manchester United. Funnily enough, because that's who they were playing in the in the match itself. But it was uh, the half time in that cup tie, and all of us piled down towards the front of the cop to to try and get on on shot behind him. But I think we just put him off. To be honest, I can't remember how many takes it took for him to do that. But uh, I think I think the other thing we all struggle with as United fans is seeing uh, Mel Sterland, former Sheffield Wednesday captain, in a in a blade shirt. Uh, I think he was club captain in the film. It's a few years since I watched it, but yeah, it's. Um, <laughs> It's one of these, isn't it? It's always great. It's like you always want to see your your club in your club represented or your team yeah. shirt. We like the full Monty. He's wearing a blade shirt. Um, yeah. Robert Carlyle's character on the hills, and there's even a, a young boy in a, a, a blade shirt in Batman Returns. I think. Can I give it a, a four out of ten for cinematic quality? But you know, eight, eight out of ten because I'll never see United in film in that form again. <laughs> You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter. Hey, what do you think you're playing at? Please give us a few stars and a good review on the Apple Podcast app or elsewhere, for instance in graffiti on a bridge over the M23. OK, I'll leave it up to you and we'll settle up later. Will you be needing anything else, love? No, with this lot and a bit of luck, we'll be fine.